0: Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay? H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. is more than a hashtag. Sunny is away today, sadly. However, we have got an incredible guest and her name is Chin Jolie Wong. She is the author of Beautiful Country. Chin Jolie Wong is a litigator and a graduate of Yale Law School and Swarthmore College. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two rescue dogs, Salty and Peppers. Chin Jolie Wong, welcome to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm delighted.
0: Okay. First of all, your book's incredible. And I have a friend who came here from Russia when she was 11 and she's 54 now and she still carries the trauma of leaving what she knew, going to Orange County, being called a, a commie Jew and just all kinds of things. She came here legally and I'm thinking like the added horrors of what you had to deal with being undocumented. Like, sure, it's terribly being called names and you miss your culture, but she didn't have this constant fear Of getting discovered and living with that. So, talk to us a little bit about that.
1: I think there's a lot of universality among immigrants, whether documented or not. This idea of uprooting is incredibly traumatic in and of itself. But yes, I learned early on in my time in America um, that we were not allowed here. And thus, there was a big secret that I had to keep and guard for all of my life. And as I grew up, I grew up around that shame and that shame grew with me and became embedded in my sense of self.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's what was so hard. You know, I was I was reading and, and thinking about that beautiful bike. I remember being a little girl and getting a bike and getting the tassels and the whole thing. And then I was listening to an interview you did and you were talking about you had to leave your extended family and, and that bike is just in storage, but being a kid and not really getting that, that's it. Like, I'm not going to just see my uncles anymore or I'm not going to ride that beautiful bike I just got because for a child, it's it's like you have to just go along with the program. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that played itself out.
1: I mean, as children, you just kind of take whatever's before you and everything that is immediate is everything that's in your world. So when I put the bike away, I was like, oh, maybe I'll come back by next Sunday and then I'll get the bike and ride it around and then I'll have dumplings as we always do. Right. And it slowly sank in um, that it was not going to be for a long time before I saw that bike. And, you know, it should be said that my parents and I didn't know how long we were going to be in America. It could have been that we returned right away. And I was hoping for that. Like, um, there's a line in the book where my mom says, should we stay here or go home? And I say, America smells like anyone who's been in the New York City subway system knows that to be true and I just did not understand at all why we were here especially because we were not wanted people did not like seeing us around we also got names thrown at us um but I also very much learned quickly to um, ease my parents' burden. They, they became these severe, serious versions of their playful selves, the ones I knew in China. And I realized that I knew more about social mores, I was better at picking up English faster, and there were things that I could do to, to lessen their burden. Um, and then another world that kind of kept me f- feeling safe and finding a home in New York City was books. My public library was my home. I found so many fictional characters and worlds that I loved. And as I became more absorbed into those worlds with my fictional family and friends, I started feeling like, okay, maybe maybe being here is not so bad.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I was wondering, like, it must have been hard. You talk about being comfortable in China and that you and your uncle would have, you know, dumpling eating contests. And I don't know if that was in the book. I read the book and I I listened to, like every interview I could. And now you're just so hungry. And I just thought of you in that cafeteria waiting for your lunch. And you usually got there too late to eat breakfast, but you just told your mom you had breakfast and lunch, right? And that 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 idea of just being so hungry, were you ever like, what the flip? Like, we were so, we were fed, you know, like it must have been really challenging.
1: Absolutely again, I think it was very helpful for me to revisit those years from my childhood lens. Right. because As a child, I assumed that everybody in China was as privileged as I had been, which was not the case. And I also assumed equally that everyone in America and New York City was as poor and hungry and afraid of being found out as I was. We just didn't talk about it because I never talked about it. And yet I felt this gnawing hunger at all times. And so it didn't, feel as stigmatized and bad to me because it wasn't like, well, this kid next to me is not hungry at all. Why am I feeling
0: hungry?
1: Had I known that, I think it would have been far harder. And Mm -hmm. above and beyond that, I think children tend to see their parents as godlike and omnipotent. And if my parents were willing to endure working at a sweatshop and working at a sushi processing plant after being professors, they were willing to endure that. There must be something good Right. It's right. something that we're here for. I just figured I didn't know it yet and I would find it eventually.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking about that too. And I think there's a lot of childhood trauma that comes with that. I was reading this uh, great interview that you did. Uh, it's called Hunger. And it was about Yom Kippur. And it's actually Yom Kippur today. Yes. And I, I don't always tape on Yom Kippur, but I'm like, I'm not missing out on you. <laughs> I am definitely doing this. I'm going to do a Zoom uh, service after this. But I thought about that, about what it might must be like for you to fast. And it was such a fascinating article. And, and that, that's still with you, even though you're doing great and you're doing well and you're well fed, that trauma really
1: sticks. I think physical trauma, especially, it lives in your body. To this day, when I am feeling any sort of anxiety or nerves, my stomach's the first place. I feel it, I had the worst stomach ache of my life the day before publication. And that was when I knew I was terrified. <laughs> I still have trouble going to the supermarket and not buying everything I see. I have trouble throwing out any crumb of food. Um, and it's this feeling of poverty it can, you know, at any point manifest and nip at my heels that has kept me running forward. Um, Pretty much my whole life, and and only in my late twenties and early thirties did I decide to stand from my ground, turn around, and confront what it was that I was running from. But I still, you know, even having done all the processing and therapy that I have in recent years, I still that that innate um, irrational childhood fear and feelings and emotions are stored up in me, in my body, those scars are there, and they can kick up really um, in the (laughs) most stressful and terrifying of times. And I just have to be aware that it is now a part of me. And and I can manage that and speak to little Chan and tell her that she's safe.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of fear, that fear of being caught, what if my teachers find out? What if other people find out? And even you talked about when you first were writing the book, you started in college, but you haven't really dealt with the hadn't really dealt with the trauma yet. So you did it as fiction; you thought of it as fiction. But then, when you came back to it, especially once you were a citizen, and you're like, "I have this new privilege now, and I have this choice." If you can talk about that,
1: yeah. So when I had tried to write it in college, I had had nowhere near healed uh, from those years and hadn't really confronted what they meant to me on even just this bodily level, much less the psychological level. And when when I became a citizen in 2016, it was 22 years after I first set foot in this country. Um, And at the swearing ceremony, there was a uh, a video of President Obama who greeted us and said, welcome fellow Americans. And it was in that moment that it sank in for me how much I had desperately needed to be called American and how no one would ever ascribe that term to me, much less the president of the United States. And I felt profoundly privileged to have received that label finally in the only country and land that I consider home. So going into then the next six months of the debates leading to the November 2016 election, I really felt like wow, for the first time, this is a choice that I'm making. I am making a choice to keep this a secret. Before it was not a choice. I was scared and everything was conditional. Now I am American, but there are many millions out there who still do not have that choice. And what am I doing with my privilege if I am not speaking up and at at the very least sharing my story. And I I do wanna be clear, I don't speak for all of us. All of our experiences are are very different and there's myriad ways in which people end up undocumented. Um, But to 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 be able to remove some of that stigma, to open up the humanity behind the headlines and the political talking points, if I could do that just a, a little bit, just a little bit, I will feel that I have lived up to my privilege.
0: Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, it's just so, and beyond heartbreaking isn't even the word, tragic, you know, for Trump to come along and just shit on everything. I'm going to say that. And that was some impetus for you, too. You'd like to, we're very blunt here on uh great ship. <laughs> that piece of, anyway.
1: <laughs> um yeah, I was so excited when I became a citizen in May 2016. I was like, I'm going to work for the first female president. And exactly. as the night of the election went on, I was watching the news. I was like, well, <laughs> this is not going Now I wanted my first election to go. And I, it's important to to state that that kind of rhetoric is not new, right? There, is, there are roots and sources for where Trump came from. There was always um a population that supported that kind of demagogue um, and he just he just took it to a new level really and he made it so bad um, in a way right in a, in a way it was a blessing he made it so bad that people could not deny it many people on the left who wanted to deny it and didn't want to think about how how um the undocumented is an underclass could not could no longer look away so at least he, he did us that favor and he gave me a swift kick um, to move in the direction that I had always dreamed of moving toward, but was too terrified to do.
0: Now I'm curious about when you got interested in Judaism. As a Jewish person myself, and I was joking with my husband last night. I was, you know, sometimes we'll we'll do these voices. I'm like, "Morty, what's going on?" You know, that's Jews. We like, "Oh, come on!" He'll. Well, I don't know what he calls me, but at any rate, I was like, "My gosh, this 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 amazing, brilliant, beautiful." woman has been through so much and now she wants to be a Jew, like she's going to add on to this with all the uprising, you know, the Jewish hate and this and that. But I think it's great because I read that you are super into Takuna Lum and I talk about that a lot. So if you can uh, tell us about that and, and and when you first got interested.
1: I realized belatedly that I had always, always been a Jewish soul. I remember reading the, the Diary of Anne Frank and Number of the Stars and those... Um, children literature from the Holocaust and feeling like, wow, in this world of books where I found a home, there's no one that really looks like me. There's no one that really knows how I feel. And not to say I've been through something as horrific as the Holocaust, but felt like I found other girls who understood, oh, they are in hiding. Who they are is not okay. And everything can be taken away. And it felt like, oh, there's literature there for me. And from there, I read a lot of Heschel uh, he is uh, my my inspiration, um, so so ahead of his time. And uh, having lived in New York City most of my life and gone to law school, I was just always around Jews. Like it was, for me, that was the like mainstream, I don't know, for some reason. And it just, it felt so natural because I think underlying Judaism is this idea of social justice and social definitely activism, Speaking up when it's not comfortable to do so. Um, and so it became very natural for me that... Um, then I met my my now husband and he was Jewish and his family is not really observant at all. I'm the most observant in <laughs> the family. Um, and I at very least wanted to give my children a religious education because I never had one. And so we started taking these classes at Central Synagogue, of which we're now a member. And I was just sucked into everything. I met with every rabbi. I just felt like my soul at long last. Had found a home, and I had always operated by this principle, of Tikkun alam, but never had a word for it, never had a spiritual framework for it. And to be in a community where everyone is aligned in that way, and then to have found also fellow Jews of color
0: That's who great.
1: understand where I've come from and how I came to where we all are now—it just—it's it, found like it, it felt like I really found a home outside of books as well.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was a kid, well, it's not interesting, it's tragic. There was We experienced a lot of anti-Semitism and people who listen to the show know. But there was a long period where I was afraid to tell anyone I was Jewish because I thought that they wouldn't like me. And so I, it, it's not even close to anything you went through. I'm just saying that, that sense of hiding, though. I was like, I can't. I remember this girl I met, Kathy, and she was from the South. And I was especially like, I had my own bias of like, oh, all people from the South are anti-Semitic and racist. So, which is not right, but that's, at the time, that my that that got in my head somehow. And they had accents, they're from Tennessee. And then one day out of the blue, she's like, oh, do you know what Hanukkah is? I hear it's really cool. I was like, really? I was like, oh, um, I've known her a long time. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm Jewish. She goes, what? Why didn't you say something? So, like, I had to wait for people to say, no, it's fine, right? But when you get that kind of hate, you're you're kind of, you're not really sure, right?
1: And I think it's very easy for people of color who have dealt with a lot of racism on a daily basis to overlook the prejudices that, that Jews face, because, because it is uh, very much conditional. Your uh, Jewish acceptance in America is conditional. And as long as anything's conditional, it, there's no safety, right? right. So it's a, it's very much aligned with what people of color feel, um, although we cannot even, you know, pass, which adds a new layer of right. difficulty. So, um, but yeah, I think, I just think um, it's it's very much aligned to be a civil rights lawyer and an undocumented former undocumented person and a Jew, I just, it was the only religion I think I've ever felt comfortable in and safe in.
0: I kind of feel like it's not every Jew, obviously, but there is a sense of that, what's right, and you speak up. And I think that makes me really proud. Like my, my husband and daughter are both anti-religious, which is kind of a bummer. (laughs) And I try to explain to her, like, but it's more, it's a culture and it's the tikkun olam and it's its more than just they're like, well, we don't know if we believe in God. That's fine. You don't have to. But there's so much beauty in it, even if you don't.
1: It's the spirit of yes. Judaism, right? Like yeah. asking the inconvenient questions, being the one to stand up when nobody wants you to stand up. That is, that's what makes us Jews even without the God and, and, and religious elements.
0: Absolutely. How did your parents feel about it?
1: I think they were very confused. Um, I think to their mind, because they don't consume a lot of American white culture, they thought all white people were Christian. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand that Judaism was a different religion. So they came to my conversion ceremony and said to the rabbi, this is a beautiful church. I love this church that you have. Like they just did not understand what was going on, but they've been very supportive. I gave a speech at Rosh Hashanah um, on the day my book came out and they came. and great. was like, can I keep your prayer book? I love this. I just feel so at home here. And I've never felt so peaceful in a religious service. So I think she, she was like, can I come to your Jews of color meetings? I was like, you should probably be Jewish, but if you like. And so I think maybe she's on her way. I don't know. It's just something that naturally appeals to us, maybe based on our past and our experiences, maybe based on just who we are.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. By the way, your book is number three. I have to sing on the New York Times bestseller list. Again, beautiful country and you deserve it. I mean, we're not done yet. I'm not letting you go yet. But I had to sing your praises. I just think it's so incredibly fantastic. Your parents, did they read the book? I think I read that they did.
1: I was terrified. I wouldn't give it to them. (laughs) Can I just read it? So they read chapters and portions. And I fact checked some things against them but they didn't read the whole work until September 7th they came to rush Hashanah service we had a lunch and I gave I presented them with the book and my mom burst into tears immediately and my parents said I we don't know if we can bring ourselves to read this just because we don't know if we can relive those years it's very painful mm-hmm. and I was worried mostly about them finding out about things that happened to me that they didn't know about like Going to school hungry that part for instance my mother didn't know about that until probably three or four years ago and when she found out she couldn't sleep she called me the next morning and said I, I didn't sleep at all i can't believe i let you do that i can't believe i've been such a bad mother they've carried so much shame over my childhood and still to this day they are afraid of the government coming after them it's a conditioning that all three of us have had and i i certainly when i went to get my coronavirus shot and they asked for id at the door i just I had to suppress this instinct to turn around and run because I was like, oh my God, I'm a, I'm illegal. I got to run away. And then I had to remember, oh wait, no, I'm, I'm in a different situation now, but, but maybe people should think about not doing that if they want as many people vaccinated as possible.
0: Exactly. Uh, give out the damn vaccine. Come on. So
1: then my parents took it home and they actually did read it. They read it in one night two nights maybe. They couldn't put it down. At one point, my mom said she tried to hide the book from my dad because she was like, these are true stories, but I don't know if you feel comfortable having everybody read them. So maybe you shouldn't read them. And he was like, no, I have to finish this. And they texted me and said, um, even though our vision keeps getting blurred from from reading, we can't put it down and we feel ourselves healing with everything." Oh and then yesterday, last night when we got the news about the New York Times, I was again terrified because I didn't want my dad to say, oh my God, ISIS is definitely going to come for us now. We're on the list. Um, I found My husband talked me into telling them and my father said, I'm so proud of you. I had no idea that you were this talented. Like I knew we were talented, but I knew you were this talented. And most of all, most meaningful to me, he said, there's nothing we are afraid of now.
0: That's so beautiful
1: this book has moved all three of us into a new chapter of healing and empathy for our past selves. And that was my wildest dream. It was not being published. It was not being on the New York times list. It was giving my parents that feeling of forgiveness and amnesty over the past.
0: I was thinking about that, about, you know, that your mom didn't know you were hungry And how hard that, because I, you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter. And even this morning, I was thinking about your book because she has the school musical. She's in the ensemble. It's her first musical ever. She's really excited. And long story short, I said, eat extra. (laughs) Like, you were on my mind. I was like, she's like, I just had breakfast. I'm like, well, eat more because you're not going to get out until five o'clock. And I just want to make sure that you are well fed. It's so important. And I just, but then I felt so sad for for the girl that you were. But then I see who you are and what you're doing. And it doesn't make that sadness go away, but it you've come so far, right? And you had that asshole teacher say, you're not a superstar. And you're like, uh, look at me now. I have to say, I would have been back in his face being like, look at me now at Yale when you said I wouldn't. I know I'm petty, but
1: i, I how did you not go back? I'm like, forget the food. How did you not go back? <laughs> People who asked me that actually. People were like, have you gone back? I'm like, they're not worth my time. So I think you're
0: so smart. You're like my husband would say the same
1: thing. <laughs> like, yeah, the this person down is not worth my time. Um, I was very fortunate in that I I guess I had dissident blood in me. I was rebellious. And if anyone had said, you can't, you are a superstar, you can do all of these things, I think I would have responded and been like, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna sit on my butt and do nothing. And because these so many of these teachers and people were telling me these are things that are far out of your reach. You can't ever hope to do it. That just added more fire to my, more fuel to my fire. um, And uh, pushed me to pursue what I was told was the, was the impossible, but there was a lock, a lot of luck involved. Like it wasn't just me. It was things falling into place at the right time. And I came in with my own set of privileges of having educated parents of, being able to learn english without an accent which was through no merit of my own it just was i think a a combination of luck and timing the age at which i arrived here um and being neurotypical and not having disabilities those are all things that helped me kind of achieve everything but um yeah to to to, when people use my story as an example that the impossible is possible to achieve the american dream is still alive and true it makes me very upset I hope you don't think that's what I was saying. No, 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 no. I just wanted to clarify. I didn't think you were saying that, but it's so easily warped in mainstream media and I can see it spinning in that direction that I feel this need to state this um, every time I'm asked about my trajectory.
0: I'm so glad. Well, the book is Beautiful Country. And Jen Julie Wong, you are amazing. I hope you come back. I I have enough questions for three hours, but I have to let you go. Tell us all the places to get your New York Times bestselling book.
1: Please support your local independent bookstore. They are vital to the community, vital to authors and readers alike. So whatever your local store is, they should have it in stock. Um, So, yes, please look there. They're also at the local public libraries, which you should also think about supporting if you are able. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. This was a delight, and I will come back anytime. It was great.
0: I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to message you on Twitter right now. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.